Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. All right, we're in this series uh, on David, and because of that, you're going to open up to 1 Samuel 18. Um, we're, we're one of those churches where we say this, we want to be wearing out our Bibles from overuse, right? So if you don't have a Bible, grab one. It's right there in the chair in front of you. It's Old Testament, 1 Samuel 18. And if you're new to our church, um, if you don't have a Bible, take that one with you. That's yours. We'll replace it. Um, but I know there's moments in the service where I say this, I'm like, hey, open to this chapter. And all of a sudden, people start pulling out their phones. If you don't know what that's about, they're not checking their fantasy football scores. At least they shouldn't be. All right? Even in the balcony. Um, they're opening what's called the version app that has the Bible on there. And so uh, let's go to 1 Samuel 18. We'll get there in just a minute. Um, I'm going to start with this question. How many friends do you have? If you came with someone this morning, uh, turn to them and don't explain anything. Give them a number. How many friends do you have? Go. By the way, if you didn't come with somebody this morning, turn around and look at people and make a friend. All right? (laughs) They will welcome you. Give them a number. How many friends do you have? This is about a five-second activity. Now, um, do this. I want you to turn back to them and as briefly as you possibly can, like one sentence, tell them how you just defined a friend. To me, a friend is what? Like, how did you pick 17? Or how did you pick 120? Or how did you pick two? I mean, when you said, I have two friends, how did you define that? Tell them real quick, go. There's less chatter. It's a harder question than giving somebody a number, huh? Uh, Let me share with you why I'm asking you this. There was uh, Robin Dunbar is a British anthropologist and psychologist, and in the 1990s came up with this concept that there's actually a maximum number of meaningful personal relationships that most humans can cultivate. Do you know what the number is? 150. That's it. One of the ways that he derived this number is actually based off this. He took the average size of ancient or medieval villages, the average number being about 150, and said that's about the number of relationships that people can can handle, that we're hardwired not to be able to handle more than this. Take a look at this diagram right here. This is um, Dunbar's kind of relationship diagram that describes actually this, there's not one kind of friend. And you already knew this, right? Because some of you say, I have two friends. These are the people that I'm so connected with. And some of you said, well, I have 758 friends on Facebook and those are all my friends. But that means something different, doesn't it? So let me explain this this diagram real quick. Uh, On the far right, those are what we call intimate friends. Said this, you can have about five These are the people that you have the habit of connecting with every single week, and you've invested 200 or more hours with these people. Now, after that, you can have about 10 friends, but it says 15 because 
Well, that'd be your first five plus your next 10. And these would be your best friends. They're also known as what's called your sympathy group. These are people that you have probably similar values, similar interests with. Um, This group, you've invested maybe almost 200 hours, but they're not quite your top five. In the next one, you, you can have about 35 friends in this category, which means uh, you already have 15. There's about 20 people in this group. And these are your, your good friends. You spent about 100 hours of investing in your relationship. Um, and it goes on from there to say this, your maximum, your maximum friendship group that you can actually have relationship with is 150 people. Because that last group there, uh, the 150, you might know kind of their stories. You might know their kids' names. You might do holidays together, vacations, barbecues, maybe annual gatherings, things like this. But they're not your top five. They're not even your top 10 or even top 35. I mean, there's just 150. And honestly, after that, it's just everybody else. Maybe you send a Christmas card to them. Maybe you don't. Um, there's a Christian author that took this concept. His name is Kerry Nyawolf, and he concluded this about Dunbar's model. Ready? This is the reason I'm sharing this with you. The principle is simple. Stop treating everyone the same. This is so great. Don't treat the five like the 150. Stop treating everyone the same. Because all relationships aren't the same. The depth of the relationship should determine the depth and the speed of your response. I think what he's talking about is we get overwhelmed with trying to invest in relationships. And so we try to treat everyone the same. So we never actually go deep with certain people. And maybe you have the capacity, and the reality is this, we all have capacity, different relational capacity, right? Some of us can have 10 really deep friendships, and others of us struggle to find even one. So based off of this question, how many friends do you have? And it's not just you receiving friendship. I would ask this, how many people are you investing in? so that you can have deep friendships. Um, I mentioned this before. I've mentioned this several times. The U.S. Surgeon General in 2022 uh, mentioned that there is a a new epidemic in the United States. And if you've heard this before, you'll know the epidemic is loneliness because we're not very good at developing these kind of relationships. And if I can be real honest with you, I think it's actually a bigger epidemic in the Silicon Valley. Here's why. It's the speed of life. It's the pace of work, and it's the transitory nature of this valley. Um, How many of you were born in the Silicon Valley? How many of you were not born in the Silicon Valley? See, there we go. Oftentimes, people will move here for work, right? Let's let's make this money, and it costs, uh, you know, a little bit more than a nickel to live here. And so once you make your money, people leave. This is a transitory place, which means this. People look around and just go, is it worth investing in friendships? David, in this 1 Samuel 18 through 23, he had an unbelievable friend to him. And this man named Jonathan. And I want to take a look at this relationship. And we're actually going to pick up David's story where we were at last week. Remember David killed Goliath. And, but then there were like five chapters where David just goes into battle after battle. And the king, Saul, is trying to kill David. And he ends up in a really dark place. Literally, he ends up in a cave. But during that entire season, God gave him a man to stand with him. 
and his name was Jonathan. I want to read to you his story. This is chapter 18, verse 1. Right after David kills Goliath, um, David experiences this life-altering friendship with, because Jonathan was this to him. Jonathan was, it's in your notes, spiritually aware. And, and this is where this picks up. Chapter 18, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. You might think, well, it just sounds like chemistry. Like, man, they had really good chemistry and like, seems like God put them together. Yes, but you have to understand who Jonathan is in this story. Jonathan was the crown prince to succeed his father, Saul. He was the one to inherit the throne. Jonathan himself, he was a great warrior. He was popular with all the people. But listen to what happens. He becomes one with David and loves him as himself. Um, it's not exactly clear when Jonathan finds out that David is actually the next anointed king of Israel. Because if you follow and you've read through the story, David's already been anointed by Samuel as the next king, and the Spirit of God is departing from Saul and coming on David. So David is going to be the next king, but no one knows this. Saul doesn't know it. Jonathan doesn't know it. But something happens in the moment that they meet. And Jonathan... But the actual text in the Hebrew says this, when it says they became one in spirit, it said God knit the heart of Saul with the heart of David. God did that. But then Jonathan has to make this choice. That concept of knit, it actually has a political connotation that it's two people choosing to be united in a partnership for political purposes. But for Jonathan, because God did that, Jonathan, though, has to choose the relationship. And I want to say this, I can point this out. Jonathan could have chose to compare himself to David. He could have said, wow, I've killed my Philistines. But wow, David killed that Goliath. I've never killed a Goliath. Man, he's better than me. Wow, I feel less than or maybe he's going to be my competition now because I'm, I'm going to be the rightful next king of Israel. And so he looks at David and he could have compared himself to him. Can I just say this? The death of our friendships comes in the form of comparison, doesn't it? If we compare ourselves to the people we're supposed to be closest to, it'll wreck our friendships. If we're actually trying to compete with one another about who's better, it'll get in the way of actually being connected Somehow Jonathan gets that God has brought them together. Can I ask you a question about your relationships? Do you see that God has brought some people into your life and it's been by his design? Are you being spiritually aware to look around and go, who are the people that God has brought into my life? And maybe it's where I'm in a season where I will help them. Maybe they, God brought them to me for a season so they can help me. Do you see that God's hand is intimately involved in connecting you with other people? There's this interesting phrase in there that he loved David as himself. Uh, this, this, this actually is a command from Leviticus 19.18. And I know you've heard it, but probably not from the book of Leviticus. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's a command of God. It's a command of God for you. Because, you know, it actually shows up again. I know you probably know this if you've read the Bible. Jesus mentioned this. Uh, this religious person asked Jesus, um, what, what's the greatest command in the scriptures? And Jesus responds with this in Matthew 22. 
uh, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, here it is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest command and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. It's interesting though, that it shows up in Jonathan and David's relationship. This friendship, it's actually the second most important command. Can I just say this? Friendship is not optional. And I know there's some introverts. I'm an introvert, slightly, just a little bit. I know this morning it's like, wow, he's an extrovert. He talks up front. Like, I go home tired, trust me. (laughs) I'm an introvert by nature. And a lot of us introverts can turn around and be like, listen, I don't need friends. I'm totally good. Like, I've got like one or two. I'm like, "Mm, you know what? I don't think we live the richness of life when we live in isolation. And if we are not spiritually aware to look around and just go, my, the command of God on my life is to not just love him, but look around at opportunities to become friends. They might be the top five. It might be the top 10. It might be the next 35. It might be within the 150. I can't do it for thousands, but I can do it for the 150 in the degree that God gives them to me. You see what I'm saying? This isn't just a concept like, hey, life is better with friends. No, life is mandatory with friends. Second point, David experienced a life-altering friendship with Jonathan because Jonathan was personally invested. Look at verse three. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. He repeats it over again. He loved him as himself. So here's what he did. He just promised, you and I, we're gonna be friends. I'm making a covenant with you. I'm making a promise. I'm making a deal. Something that is binding and nothing's going to alter this. Now, here's what I'm not saying. Please don't walk up to someone in church in the lobby today and look at them and be like, I'm making a covenant today with you, brother. Because that just makes you weird, okay? (laughs) But what about the people whom you're spiritually aware with and all of a sudden you sense, God, this is a person that I feel like I'm connected to, that, that you want me to get to know, would you actually make a personal investment there or are you going to remain commitment-phobic? We live in a world that is commitment-phobic and sometimes I get it, right? Hey, my wife and I, we've been here for 21 years and we've been left by some fantastic people. You know what I'm talking about? I get the whole left fatigue after a while. We meet people in church, and I'm not aggressive, but I, I'm, um, I'll step out and meet people at church and be like, hi, I'm Scott. I'd like to know you. And then they see the microphone, and they're like, is that on? <laughs> I just want, I want to know people. And I can't know everybody, but there's some people that I meet that I go, oh, I chemistry, we have same interests. Like I really like it. And we get to know them and they're like, we're moving. You've had this, right? You've invested in a relationship in your neighborhood and they move away. And my wife and I, in those seasons, we cry over some of those. Some of those were like, sweet, they're moving. (laughs) (laughs) I won't tell you which neighbor, no. But there's this fatigue and this question that kind of says, God, I don't know if I want to be left again. And so we hold back and we're just content and we keep people a little bit at bay. And you know what that lacks? It lacks this one word called vulnerability. It's funny, we even have a saying for it. Um, It is better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. And we use that in romantic, romantic settings and terms, but the concept is this, is 
I know why people don't want to personally invest. We're unsure about people. It makes us vulnerable. We don't want to be left again. But Jonathan makes this covenant with David. You and I are going to be connected, and we're going to be connected forever. Number three, David experienced life-altering friendship with Jonathan because Jonathan was sacrificially generous. Look at verse four. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. This is a powerfully symbolic moment. I don't think he does it in front of Saul. It doesn't say. I don't think he does it in front of anybody. I think this is a moment between David and and, and Jonathan. And I, I could be wrong because it's not totally clear. But listen, he gives him everything that signifies that he's the king's son. The royal robe, I'm the prince, the next in line, takes it off and gives it to David. His tunic. And did you you notice that word in there? He says, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Because you know the king's son, right? He didn't just have a sword like anybody else, right? Or a, a bow like anybody else. He had the king's son's sword. It was better than everybody else's. I mean, it, it, who knows what it looked like? But this signified that he was next in line for the throne. And we don't know if Jonathan knew at that moment that God whispered in his ear, Jonathan, you're not going to be king. David's the next king. He just shows sacrificial generosity towards David. And David accepts this. Um, Throughout this story, Jonathan is actually contrasted with his dad, Saul. If you remember from last week, I mean, if Jonathan is sacrificially generous, it's interesting because Saul is the opposite. He gets fearful of David and he becomes jealous. If you look in verse two where you're at, it says this, that from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. Why keep David with you? Utilitarian purposes. He, he saw David kill Goliath and he's like, I want a warrior like that in my camp. Not only that, I kind of want him in my castle to protect me. And so... Saul, instead of befriending David, uses David. Oh, you're a great warrior. Come in my kingdom. Why? Because what you can do for me. Says this in verse five, David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. As a result, Saul sent him over, uh, set him over the army and all the people, even the servants of Saul approved of this. It can be really easy to use our friendships in a utilitarian means. When it serves us well, we stick and stay. When it doesn't serve us well, like Saul, maybe we get jealous. Saul, hopefully none of us are like Saul. He gets ragefully angry. But I just wonder if we're willing to stick with people when it doesn't benefit us. Maybe they're your five. Maybe they're your your 10. Maybe they're your 150. At some point, um, relationships have to feel to some degree uh, this reciprocity, like there is a give and take. Because if not, if we're always in the position of power in a relationship, pretty unhealthy. If we're always in the position of, of need in the relationship, that likewise can be unhealthy. But there's this unbelievable generosity that Jonathan has towards, uh, towards David and gives him and provides him with these clothes. The fourth David experienced a life-altering friendship with Jonathan because Jonathan was this. He was fearlessly loyal. Um, We learned this last week, chapter 19, verse 1. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. Why? Saul feared him. David was so successful. He's like, we got to get rid of this guy. 
But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning, go into hiding and stay there. I'll go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. And then listen to this, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. Jonathan, even though his dad's the king, even though it's his dad, opposes his dad. Dad, why are you trying to kill my friend? What has he ever done to you other than bring success to this kingdom? Jonathan could have pushed it aside. It's like, my dad wouldn't do that. You're crazy. Like, why would my dad dislike you? You've done so much for him. He doesn't say, well, hey, sometimes my dad just kind of loses his cool. That's Saul being Saul. He addresses this and verbally confronts his dad. Um, you know, I think it's, um, it's easy to stand up for our friends when they're stellar. There are moments where you will mess up and I will mess up and your friends will mess up. I just wonder if we will be fearlessly loyal to those that we sense God has brought our way and stand with them. Because loyalty, um, loyalty is easy and I'm not even sure it's loyalty when life is easy. It's when they do something dumb. It's when they fail. It's when they sin. And you look at them and just go, man, I thought you were better than that. It's hard to stick with them at that point. But I keep asking myself this question when I get in that situation. Where is the gospel in my relationship with people? What's the gospel? It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Where's the gospel This Jesus who came to die for the sin of the world, and Paul describes himself, I'm the worst of sinners. What does loyalty look like? It doesn't mean we we have to stick with our five people for the rest of our lives. I'll get to that in just a moment. But do we give up on people too easily? It doesn't mean your relationships won't change. But sometimes when we're hurt, I would challenge you to ask this question. Where's the gospel in your relationship when, it's te- when you're tempted to break away, I think it's actually a moment where the gospel can win out and forgiveness can happen and loyalty can be met with that person's response of loyalty as well. So Jonathan, in this case, he confronts his dad and he's this bridge builder. And all of a sudden he brings David back to the kingdom and unites Saul and David once again. And things go back as they were before. And it's all good for about a hot second. It was just a pause in Saul's war against David. Saul's violent nature is about to explode. Saul grabs a spear and for the third time throws it at David and misses. It's kind of comical because um, in this story, Saul throws his spear um, at David about three times and misses all three times. At least I know now why Saul didn't go out and fight Goliath. He is not very good with that spear. He keeps missing David. So Saul sends people to David's house so that when David comes home, he will kill him and David flees for his life. And then Jonathan goes back to his dad and is like, dad, what is up? First Samuel chapter 20, verse 30, flip over a couple pages, chapter 20, verse 30, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and Saul is about to cuss out his son. There's no other way to read this. Here it is. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. 
That's a pretty harsh way to talk to your boy. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me for he must die. Jonathan, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan said to his father, but Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger on that second day of the feast. He did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. Your own dad. Your own dad throws a spear at you because you're fiercely loyal to your friend. It reminds me that Jesus mentioned something about friendship. And he said this about this kind of fearless loyalty. In John 15, it says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love, here's the greatest love in the world. Here it is. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then he says this, you're my friends if you do what I command. Um, how did Jesus love us? He came to this world, was born as a baby. We celebrate that at Christmas time. He says, you're going to be my friends, but I'm going to do something for you that you can't do for yourselves. You can't get to heaven because of your sin. But because of my perfect life, I'm going to die on a cross in your place. No greater love than this. There is no greater friendship than someone lay down their life for their friends. And Jesus says this before he goes to the cross. I tell you that for two reasons. One, if Jesus is not your friend, then I would invite you this Christmas to make him your friend. And the only way that he can be your friend is if you accept the fact that he dies on the cross for your sins and you accept forgiveness and friendship with God. So when we talk about being a friend, I will tell you this, it's super hard to try and live with this out unless you have a friend like Jesus and he transforms your life. You have to have him as this kind of friend so that you and I can be this kind of friend to others. Maybe this Christmas will be different for you because you finally say yes to the sacrifice that he made because he will be the greatest friend you will ever know. I guarantee you this, people will let you down, but Jesus won't. He went to the cross for you. Um, David experienced number... uh, what are we on five here? David experienced a life-altering friendship because Jonathan was this. He was authentically humble. Let me show you this. Chapter 23, verse 16 says this. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh. And this is a moment like David is just heartbroken. And um, he, he knows that this friendship is not going to continue. And it says this. And he helped him find strength in God. He said, don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand upon you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. I love it. Jonathan doesn't try and cheer him up. Listen, it's all going to turn out okay. Everything will be fine. David, buck up, little camper. He doesn't do that. He helps him find strength in God. I love this as a friend because of this. Can I, can I just say, if you're going to be a good friend to people, help point them to Jesus. When they, when they come to you with a dilemma, ask him this. What what does the Bible say about that? What does God say about that? What does Jesus say about that? Keep pointing them to Jesus when they feel unloved. Wait, wait, I can be your friend, but 
have you forgotten how much God loves you? The greatest thing you can do is what Jonathan did with David in this moment and point them to Jesus. Point them to God and let them find their strength in God. And then Jonathan states, you're going to be the king of Israel and I'm going to be second. David, you're first and I'm second. And there's no reluctance to his words, but joy for David and for himself. And I was thinking of this, this kind of humility that he has. Humility doesn't care what seat you have on the bus as long as you sense that it's the seat that God wants for you. I'm going to say that again because you might need to write this down. It is not in your notes. Humility doesn't care what seat you have on the bus. Doesn't care if I'm I'm first, I'm second, I'm third, back of the bus. It, It doesn't matter where you sit on this bus as long as you sense that it is the seat that God wants you in. Some of you are great number two people in the relationship or number three people. Some of you, you will not be as successful as some of the friends that you have, but can you still cheer them on? Can you celebrate their wins? Or do we get back to comparison and competition that will undermine and undergird your relationship? You will be king of Israel and I will be second to you. Last point, and sometimes we hope that friendships will actually last forever. I mean, have you ever told somebody this? We're going to build houses next to each other. Our kids will grow up to each other. And like, maybe we'll like, in the gate between our houses, there's not, there's a fence. We're going to put a gate in there so we can like, our kids can run back and forth and we're going to grow old together. It's going to be fantastic. I don't know if Jonathan and David had hoped for that, but Jonathan's friendship to David was this. It was reluctantly seasonal. If you, you'll have to turn back a couple pages and you get the, this descriptive nature of their relationship. Jonathan and David are convinced that David needs to run away because of Saul's threats. And then we have these graphic details about them saying goodbye. In this part of the story, they don't know for how long. It's not that they don't love and care for each other. They just know that they're not going to see each other for a while. Verse 41 reads this way. Then they kissed each other, and they wept together. But David wept the most. We just read the divinely inspired word of God. This is motivated by the Holy Spirit, written by Samuel. And why would he say this? David wept the most. The heartbreak that's happening, David's heart is breaking more. Because he was served by Jonathan. Jonathan was personally invested in this life-altering friendship and it impacted David's life. They didn't avoid the relationship because one day Saul might come between them, that one of them might have to leave. But David has this broken heart because if I'm honest, as you read this story, it's kind of a lopsided friendship. Jonathan is in the position of power as the next king. And he gives that away to David to say, David, it's not about my power. God has chosen you. And David, honestly, he's on the run most of their relationship. So he doesn't even have the power to reciprocate. Can I just say this? Some of y'all, some of y'all are super comfortable being Jonathan's. I'm a good friend to people. I bake cookies when they're sick and I do this. And like, if I said, hey, your friend is in the hospital, they could use a meal. You're like, done. 
You not even will bring a meal, but you're going to coordinate all the meals. And then you get sick. And you go into the hospital and you have surgery. And people are like, hey, can we bring you a meal? You're like, no, 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 it's okay. Have my leg amputated. It's not that bad. I can still hop to the fridge. I'm good. Because you are so comfortable in the position of power and the position of the one to serve, but yet you lack the humility and the vulnerability to let other people serve you. You steal their blessing. I use that line all the time. Use it. Steal it, okay? When you say, hey, I'm going to come over. Can I do this for you? No, no, that's okay. Just tell them, really, you're going to steal that blessing from me? Oh, the guilt and shame in that is fantastic. It works almost every time. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord is witness between you and me and between our descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. Their relationship was reluctantly seasonal, and you may have people in your top five, your top 10, your top 35, who you would love to do life with forever. But the reality is this, particularly living in this valley, some of our relationships will be reluctantly seasonal. Please do not let that isolate you and stop building friendships. I mentioned just Kelly and I and this concept of how we deal with it. And honestly, we have to force ourselves to keep reaching out and building relationships. But here's the nature of what it's like to come to this church. Everyone walks through these doors and wonders, who's going to say hi to me today? And in all of our grown-up, childish insecurities, we walk through a building and wonder, who will say hi to me? Who will be my friend? I wonder if I'll be welcomed. And we are so thin-skinned that if we feel shunned at all, I'm not going back there. Those people aren't kind. Most people at the end of this message are going to ask this question. Do I have friends like this? And it's a great question. Because if not, you should look for friends like that and see, be spiritually aware enough to see who God might bring your way. I think the more mature question and the question that we need to ask is this question. Am I this kind of friend? Do you walk in the doors of this church looking for people that you could be a Jonathan You look at people and just say, you know what, I I don't know you. I'd love to take you out to lunch. Let's go out to lunch and connect. And maybe they'll never be your top five. That's okay. But do you open yourselves up to friendships? Do you pursue it? Or are you, you looking for someone to come and love you first? Here's what I believe. The world we live in, particularly this valley we live in, needs more Jonathans. And we can be those Jonathans so that people can experience life-altering friendships. And when we do, we get to point them to Jesus and love them like Jesus, and their lives will never be the same. But it will take a courageous church to love each other that way and step into our neighborhoods and love people that way and step into our workplace and love people that day. If we do that, though, if we're a courageous group, I think people's lives are going to be changed. But it's going to take some courageous people. And I think that's you. Let's pray.
God, thanks. Thanks for Jonathan and the way that he loved and for David, the way that he was just in a position of need. God, I pray that you would give us courage to be the kind of people who will live this out. And God, it's Christmas, and we're in a season where some people's needs will become apparent. And I pray that we would be able to walk alongside them and be generous, that we might be encouragers. So God, um, instead of thinking a year down the road what we might want to do, this weekend, this week, this Christmas, would you bring something to mind people that we can love and encourage, that we can be generous with. And God, as you show us that, help us to just boldly step in. Lord, I pray for those right now who are feeling a sense of loss or loneliness. I want them to lean on you, Lord, and I pray that they do. But life was not intended to be lived alone. I pray that you would connect people together in a way that they can have a friend at this church. Lord, would you do that? And would you help us to be vulnerable enough to be willing to step into those places? And everybody said,